Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. She has all the ammunition and all the desire for revenge is so great. And she's suffered so much loss and, and kind of for her, for her own sake and on behalf of so many others, the urge to destroy is so strong. And, and yet the choice not to destroy becomes even stronger. And that's the, that's the mark of greatness. Welcome back to West of Westeros, Entertainment Weekly's Game of Thrones podcast. I'm Nick Romano, a senior writer here at EW, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Lauren Morgan. Lauren, it is episode nine, the penultimate episode. Things are going down. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. Pretty good. I am ready to get a Rainy Says My Queen t-shirt, but we will get to that shortly, but... I know we have a guest with us that we'd like to introduce. Yeah, it's it's a good time to be talking about House of the Dragon. And to unpack this week's episode, we have Megan O'Keefe, senior critic at Decider. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. A delight. <laughs> I'm really excited to get into it. Oh, good. Uh, I mean, we kind of talked about this earlier, but we follow you on Twitter, and I know you have a lot of thoughts on Game of Thrones and House <laughs> of the Dragon. <laughs> Can't wait to dig into this episode with you. But first, there's a couple of newsy kind of items that have popped up in the Game of Thrones universe that I'd love to unpack with you both. The first one, I think it'll sound familiar. A Negroni Spagliato with Prosecco in it. (laughs) Stoning. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. It's kind of this viral meme that's popped up thanks to Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook. Both of the actors were shooting this clip for an interview promo for HBO for House of the Dragon. They were pulling random scrolls of paper from a chalice, a dragon egg chalice, and asked each other questions and sort of a get to know me style conversation. Olivia asks Emma what their drink of choice is, and Emma responds, a Negroni. Spugly, I can't stop saying this. I've just been, <laughs> it's been on loop. Um, TikTokers and everyone on social media have ballooned this into a major viral moment to the point where NPR is running articles about why everyone wants to drink a Negroni Spock <laughs> So, Lauren, what was your first reaction when you saw this? Well, I started seeing this going around on Twitter and I didn't know where it was coming from. I just kept er- seeing everyone talking about Negroni Spagliatos and I was like, why is it? It's like, you know, it's like one of those times when you come in on Twitter and you're in- midway in the conversation, you're like, what is going on and why is everyone talking about it? And then after like a couple more minutes, I realized it was Emma, Emma Darcy who had, had instigated this whole thing. So, you know, and I, I mentioned before, I'm not on TikTok because I just feel like I am too old for TikTok. So I, I saw it first on Twitter. So <laughs> that was my first introduction to it. Megan, what about you? Are you super into Negronis now because of this? <laughs> I personally think they're a little bitter for my palate, but I will say what was funny to me was I remember watching the clip like 
a few weeks ago on like YouTube because I was just curious about what HBO was doing for promo, who these new actors were. And so to see that moment go viral when Emma was talking about their favorite drink, I was so confused. I was like, I watched that. (laughs) It didn't pop at me. And I've never, I guess, felt, may I say, more straight because it just did not hit any kind of chord. (laughs) I was way more into Olivia Cook's Mancunian accent. That sounded really cool to me. But yeah, God bless, you know. Yeah. (laughs) And Emma was asked about this meme in particular by the New York Times in a recent interview. They said, I keep thinking I should tell my mom that I've become a meme in the hope that she'll be happy for me, but I'd have to explain what a meme is. And I've decided it's too much effort. And then they go on to say, I feel so embarrassed because in those interviews, when we've been at it for six hours, I'm honestly only trying to make Olivia laugh. And how sweet is that? Oh, my God. I, I just live for the chemistry between these two actors. Do either of you have any kind of favorite moments on their whole like promo tour of House of the Dragon so far? I personally just love following them on Instagram because they drop the best behind the scenes images. I think my favorite has been any well, any image with Risa fans being an idiot is pretty stellar. So they, I just really love the chaotic fun of this cast. They seem to really love each other and enjoy making each other laugh over Negroni's apology. I can't even say it. <laughs> I liked when Olivia Cook basically had to tell Reese to not look at her in order to act because he, she just says that he like cracks her up all the time. And it sounds like he was just basically kind of like the mad jokester of the, you know, because he like supposedly he was like making fun of Fabian Frankel and his armor and stuff like that. So at a certain point, she just sort of banned him from looking at her because she couldn't act because she would just start cracking up. So I like that kind of stuff. The other big news item that I wanted to talk to you both about is... Are we, okay, so let's talk about pronunciation for a second. Darren Targaryen? Da- Darren Targaryen? I always thought it was Darren Targaryen, but... You know, I've I've been off about pronunciations in this world before. I when I was reading the book, I thought Darren, and now I'm wondering if it's Dayron, like in some. But that sounds like Key and Peele sketch, and I feel very silly saying Dayron. But maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call him Darren. He's Darren yeah. from you know Long Island over here. <laughs> well, I always know like you know the the Gen pool, which was J E Y N E, was just Jen, and I was just like, okay, this. I bet this is just Darren. You know. <laughs> just you know weird weird spelling but you know common pronunciation so that's how i thought so for anyone who isn't aware allison and viserys had four children aegon the eldest helena amond and the youngest darren and darren hasn't appeared on the show at all nor has anyone acknowledged his existence <laughs> but george rr R. martin wrote a blog post recently on his not a blog page and clarified quote yes allison gave viserys four children three sons and a daughter their youngest son darren is down in old town we just did not have the time to work him in this season. That sounds insane to I was me. Just like, they, they couldn't have just put in a sentence like, you know, oh, where's the other baby? Or where's Darren? Or, you know, oh, Darren's with his uncle. Like, they could have just slid it in there real easy. I mean, but because yeah, like, I just didn't think Darren even existed. I just thought they wrote him out. So I was just surprised. I was like, you know, okay, there's no Darren. And then I was like, oh, there is a Darren. Who knew? So. And even Viserys last week was like, my whole family is here. And someone could have obviously been like, except Darren. He's in Old Town. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't remember his youngest son. Maybe that's part of it. It felt like very much like a Will Byer Stranger Things moment where even the showrunners forgot it was his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but we'll see. I mean, Georgia said it now. So now the showrunner, Ryan Condal, he's got to do it. He's got to yeah, pull it we've out. Got, we've got to see another blonde baby here. So. <laughs> Well, I think I was mentioning to you guys before, I think I, this is after episode nine is aired, I believe, but in the in the opening credits, we see the bloodline of Hightower and, and, and Targaryen, and there actually are four bloodlines coming from Alicent. One of them is shorter and stops towards a tower-like sigil, so maybe that's their acknowledgement of Darren. I love that. That's why when you mentioned that I went back and I was like, oh yeah, there is. But like I like I've been very disappointed with the intro to House of the Dragon, and I I, I kind of hope they redo it next year. Or we get a song, like you know, an individual song. I kind of like I always loved that uh, the Game of Thrones intro, and in this I'm just like we don't even get a new song. So I just kind of <laughs> skip over it. So I never noticed it before. I mean, that's, I know the main title sequence, that's a whole nother story. But for, let's now dig into episode nine of House of the Dragon. For anyone listening in, our ground rules remain the same. In this first portion of the podcast, we're just going to be talking about House of the Dragon from a show perspective. So that means that anything that has already aired on the series up to this point, including in episode nine, as well as anything that's been mentioned in the press is fair game to talk about. We'll only really bring in the books if it helps answer basic questions like who the heck is that guy? What's going on? Anything to kind of help paint a clearer picture of what we're actually seeing on screen. And then the second portion of the podcast, we're going to be switching it up and talking about House of the Dragon as it relates to George R. R. Martin's books, specifically Fire and Blood and where this is all taking us. So fair warning to anyone who wants to avoid as much of the bigger picture as possible. And the final portion of the podcast will be dedicated to an interview with a member of the cast and crew of House of the Dragon. This week, we're joined by two folks, Episode 9 director Claire Kilner and actress Eve Best, who plays Rhaenys Targaryen. So let's dig into all of this. Megan, special guest, first time on the podcast. What are your general impressions after watching this episode? I think I was telling a friend who also watched it that it feels like all of the first eight episodes, like the time jumps, the slow buildup, the character stuff, it's like a roller coaster ride where it's a slow build to the top. And after that, there's the big dip and it just goes insane. This was that first dip on the coaster where you're just screaming your head off because everything's happening so fast. The tensions are escalating to a crazy degree. We have people murdered. We have a dragon, you know, I don't want to do spoilers, but like popping out of a damn floor. We, It's just... it. It finally feels like the you know it, it's all starting to happen. Lauren, what about you? General impressions? Oh, the same thing. I mean, I'm still like slightly frustrated that the Allison's whole thing was basically just a miscommunication with Viserys, which is like, no, Viserys said that he wanted Aegon, and it was like that's not who he was talking about. Like, you know, it was a part I had to put aside like that little frustration. But uh, yeah, it was basically like it was like as soon as Viserys died, all hell broke loose. And I, I thought it was really interesting to see like all of these people had been plotting for this for like, you know, outside of Allison's understanding, like the small council had been plotting about this. Poor Lord Beesbury, though, hadn't gotten the note, <laughs> but <laughs> everybody else had been chatting about this. You know, the Lannister, you know, Jason Lannister was in. Oh, no, hold on. That's Tylan Lannister, right? We have so many twins on this show. I can't keep them straight. And we're going to get to the other pair later on. But like, you know, Tylan, you know, the uh, and, and, you know, and Otto is basically like rubbing his hands together. Like, I've been planning for this for years. So that's kind of like how it felt. So, you know, Kristen Cole, though, still remains the worst. 
I feel like this is almost, I mean, not a different show, but it just feels like a new phase. I'm, I The time jumps didn't always work with, for me. I felt like we lost a lot of intimate character moments, but now that we're kind of, yeah, I mean, this episode nine takes place the morning after the last episode. And this already feels like the stakes are higher. Shit is going down. People are making moves. I'm ready. I'm ready to go full in on this. So this episode is directed by Claire Kilner and written by executive producer Sarah Hess. It's titled The Green Council, which was a name from Fire and Blood giving to the meeting of Allison and her supporters on the small council to address the king's death and plot to put Aegon on the throne. They hide the king's death from everyone. They imprison all the maids and servants in the dungeons to prevent word from getting out. And they isolate themselves until they come to a decision. So in this room, I mean, both of you correct me if I'm wrong. We see Alicent, Hand of the King, Otto Hightower, Master of Ships, Tyland Lannister, Master of Laws, Jasper Wilde, that asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Grandmaster Orwell, Master of Coin, Lyman Beesbury, Kingsguard Soldier, Kristen Cole, and Commander of the Kingsguard, Harold Westerling. Anybody, no one else is in that room, right? Like secretly hiding kind of in the corners. Because it's a little bit of a different lineup than the book. I know we've all kind of read Fire and Blood. But Lauren, what are kind of your big impressions, big takeaways from just all of the different dynamics that are happening as soon as those doors close on the small council. Well, I will say Graham McTavish, who I was just like, if you're going to bring Graham McTavish and give him more to do, because they really haven't given him enough to do, but he was doing a lot without saying very much. Like, just like when they would cut to him and he's like, can you, like, what is going on here? Like, (laughs) he's just like, this is no, you know, and and at a certain point, you're just like, Harold, you should have just stabbed Kristen at one point or another, <laughs> like taken that cape from him. Like, he's just like, I was like, after so much, you, you should have really just knocked this kid out of the Kingsguard because he does not deserve to be here. But yeah, it was very interesting. Like, and I mean, I know Lyman Beesbury and Bill Patterson, who I've loved and has been in many, many different things over the years. And where he's like the only person who's like basically sticking up for Rhaenyra claim but I thought it was very in- interesting where Otto's like well we have to go kill Rhaenyra and Allison's like no we don't have to kill Rhaenyra and I was just like that's a very kind of different perspective on Allison than I you know than we had read it previously in the book so I thought that was like a very interesting and then also like yeah I just like it was pretty much for me Graham McTavish was the silent MVP of this where he was just like I am not doing these things I am not going to Dragonstone and like Nope. Like, I, you know, until you guys figure out who's the king, I'm out. And I just was like, thank you, Howard Westerling. You're the only person with some honor in this room. What did you think, Megan? Similar. I was really struck by Allison's behavior in this scene because, I mean, again, as a book reader, not to bring them in, but you are given a very different portrait of her, her feelings and her motivations in this sequence. It really struck me that this was a moment where she realized that she and her father were not on the same page and that that feeling only continues as the episode goes on. And I thought it, w- it is striking that she does not want to kill Rhaenyra. She wants to go about this peaceably. And even though I know the ending of last week's episode didn't work for you, Lauren, and some friends of mine, I do think it's interesting that she, to give her that idea that she really, truly believes earnestly, whether she misheard or she wanted to believe, that the Aegon prophecy meant her son. And that I don't know if she actually wants her son to be king, but now with Viserys saying that to her, she feels this emotional and moral onus to to fulfill that. And that almost 
makes it a little spicier in the dramatic blend we're, we're dealing with here. Yeah, it, make, it makes Allison a lot more complicated as a character than she was in the book where you're just like, you know, there's just these two ladies pitted against each other. And like, this is there's a lot more complicated stuff going on with Allison this time, I think. I also loved watching Allison in relation to Harold Westerling because Allison is always talking about, you know, I have to believe that goodness and morality are gonna win out in the end. And Harold is the only one acting honorably. And there's so many shots, you know, just framed camera moments of Allison looking at Harold, seeing what he does, seeing how he walks out and just rids himself of this. And it really just emphasizes, Megan, to your point, that Otto has really made an enemy <laughs> out of his own daughter by not cluing her in. Ugh. It also just felt very condescending, like, oh, we, we didn't want to, you know, <laughs> we didn't want to bring you into the seedier machinations of this whole small council situation. Yeah, you've been sort of leading the ca- the small council over these years, but you haven't really been like, and I think that's what she realizes that, you know, whatever power she thought she had to wield, she was not really wielding it. But now she's kind of coming into her power. She's realizing, oh, wait, I am queen. If you don't shut up, I'm going to send you to the wall. I loved that. (laughs) And then, like, from this moment on, like, the pace takes such a fast turn. Like, things are happening so quickly. The Greens are not wasting time. Rhaenys is locked in her room. Otto gathers all the heads of houses currently at court and pressures them all to bend the knee to Aegon. It's a little, I don't know if it was clearer to both of you, but I felt like, oh, are, are they putting all of like the Rhaenyra's supporters who are still standing by her in d- the dungeon or are they hanging him, hanging all of them like Lord Caswell? Poor Lord Caswell. It was a little, I don't know. I, I, I feel like either situation could have been true. What were, what were sort of either both of your kind of big takeaways, big impressions from that whole sequence? Lauren, I'll start with you. Yeah, it definitely really seemed like there were probably a lot of people who were would have preferred not to bend the knee, but they understood that they were probably going to die if they didn't. And so, and but hats off to what was it, House Fell, I think, who that the woman who just stood up and was like, "Nope, I swore an oath," and I was just like, "Hats off to you, lady," <laughs> you know. And I was like, "Enjoy the dungeons or wherever." I mean, I assume most of them probably went into the dungeons because I wouldn't think that the greens would really get many people to their side if they lopped off the top of all of these various houses. Although maybe that would have worked. I don't know. But yeah, the, the few the, the few people that were trying to stand up and be like, no, I swore an oath and I hold to my oath. And poor Lord Caswell, who was trying to do it both ways and got caught anyway. So, you know, I thought that was like, I thought that was a very interesting scene where they were just kind of like, I guess, yeah, all right, I'll just bend <laughs> the knee right now. You know, yeah. kind of a lot, a lot of Weasley behavior going on in the uh, the throne room that day. <laughs> Megan, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, it definitely was striking how Otto wasn't even giving them a choice. Like, there was no diplomacy. There was no, like, sure, go back to your your people, talk talk it out. He was literally, I assume, going to either, at best, imprison them. I hear the dungeons are lovely this time of year in Westeros. <laughs> um, and at worst, pull a Caswell. And, I mean, knowing where things are going and seeing how quickly they murdered Beesbury, like, it, it just shows how in it to win it how house hightower is besides i mean allison though she's in a different way but yeah she's still trying to hew to her values and say we don't have to kill people whereas Otto seems dead set that they do well the death of beesbury felt more like an accident 
I don't know. I feel like Kristen I mean it was intentional like, in the novel and accidental here, but you know, still to quote SNL, it's white male rage. <laughs> Just <laughs> out of control. <laughs> maybe then, that's why maybe that's why they finally got rid of those circles with the the balls after that. Like, you know, because they're not in the later the later great the small councils. They were like, yeah, maybe these just aren't a good idea. <laughs> like we'll, we'll just we're just gonna, you know, maybe, maybe not from now on. So <laughs> yeah, after trauma. Kristen John Wicks them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Complicating matters for everyone involved is the fact that Aegon is missing. He apparently snuck out in the night to party in Flea Bottom, and now no one can find him. Otto tasks Sir Eric. I'm going to try and <laughs> overemphasize all of my pronunciations for these people with finding Aegon using discretion, and he demands that the knight bring Aegon to him. Eric brings his twin brother, Eric. I don't know if that was clear with my pronunciation. Oh my God, I'm keeping him track, my God. I think we're just going to have to nickname them like, you know, twin one and twin two, or like Eric one and Eric two, like something like that. A&E, yeah. A&E network. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then meanwhile, Allison's kind of doing the same. She's not really trusting her father anymore. She tasks Sir Kristen Cole with finding Aegon, and Aemon decides to go, with him knowing his brother's typical movements it becomes this like really cool race to find Aegon, and whoever gets hold of him first will ultimately shape the next events to come there's so many interesting dynamics between characters Aegon and aemond sort of the twins Kristen and aemond megan what kind of stood out to you what were your reactions just watching this whole race to find Aegon. The great race. The amazing race. <laughs> the, the part that I had to like rewind and like try to re-listen to was the scene when Allison's asking Kristen to go after him because she sort of suggests that like there's an understanding between them or that he's in love with her because she said something about like for all you feel for me or something do this for me and he's like I will not fail and I think it, it has been it's been sort of teased but not really that after being heartbroken by Rhaenyra you know, Allison swoops in and takes this broken shell of a warrior and basically she doesn't turn him into like a Sir Harwin Strong uh, Cersei, but she kind of has like a, a murder man who's devoted to her in a similar way now without the Kyburn's intervention. But yeah, I mean, that really struck me. I'm curious if they're going to tease that out more. So I feel like even though I can see Sir Kristen idolizing Allison in a similar way as Rhaenyra, but whether or not he would cross that line and seduce or have sex with Allison, I think is very different now. He obviously quotes like the seven and like Allison seems also the two of them swallowed that good septum religious juice yeah oh my god i felt like kristen after this to your point had like such mommy issues because because what was the quote he was like oh all women are in the image of the mother yeah oh my god (laughs) you and allison must just be doing a lot of praying together over these past few years (laughs) like these past 16 years like i don't know but Lauren, what about you in particular for this? That was interesting. Like the the, the person who really popped out of this was uh, Eamon for me. Cause like last week I was like, oh, he's just, you know, classic bad Targaryen. But this one where he's basically like, I, you know, I should be king. I'm the one who's doing all the work. I'm the better warrior. He's just a drunk, you know? And I was just like, oh, that's an interesting dynamic between the, like between Aegon and Aemon. So I, I was just sort of like, he kind of popped for me and like where, you know, he was going around with Sir Chris. Kristen and you know Eamon's still just bad flip of the coin but I was like oh that's a, that's a lot more interesting 
portrayal for him that, you know, he really doesn't like his brother, doesn't think he should be king, thinks he should be king. And hey, if they can't find Aegon and Aegon happens to die, who gives a shit? I'll 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 become (laughs) friends. Like, you know, interesting dynamic going on between those Targaryen brothers. Yeah, it echoes in episode seven, that scene when Aegon is complaining about having to marry Elena and Aemon's like, I would do it. And it's like, what? (laughs) You're Ted. Like, what are you talking about? Marrying your sister. I am very curious once we do introduce Darren into this, like, what's Darren like in this little, like, quadrangle of sibling, uh, sibling screwed upness? Like, is, is Darren the normal one? And they just, that's why they kicked him over to Old Town, Old Town. Like, I'm just really very curious how that one fits into this group. Something definitely went down. <laughs> like, send him to boarding school we, <laughs> until it all washes over. But we learn a couple of things about Aegon kind of during this whole sequence of events. We, find this kind of like underground child fighting pits where all of these like kids, these street kids, their teeth are whittled down to find points and they just basically beat the shit out of each other and people gamble on them. And apparently, according to the twins, at least, Aegon spends a lot of his nights at this place. One of his bastards is there too, because there's a bright, like there's a kid (laughs) with bright white hair as well. And they're like, oh, so there's just some mini Targaryen bastards running around Flea Bottom as well. So here's a question for the group. Do we think Aegon is purposely throwing all of his bastard children into this child fighting ring to kind of get rid of them? (laughs) Or do we think that he's just a drunken buffoon and just likes to gamble? (laughs) I think he's kind of a drunken buffoon. I wouldn't put like, this isn't like Cersei or or whoever wound up killing all the Baratheon uh, bastards. I can't even remember at this point if it was, if it was Joffrey or Cersei, but like, you know, I kind of just think he's a, a drunken lout and he's just, you know, Lord knows what he's getting up to in Flea Bottom. If he's intentionally doing anything, it's being more and more of a fuck up, I think, if I may say fuck up, because he clearly does not want the responsibility of being king. He's felt clearly passed over by his parents. He doesn't, he's not even sure if his mom loves him. And it's almost like he's challenging the family to disown him from the line so he doesn't have to bother with it. And this also, this child fighting ring kind of brings in Masaria back into the fold. First of all, Megan, Lauren and I have very strong feelings about this accent that Sonoya Mizuno is doing. What do you feel about it? I'm not a fan of it. Um, It's definitely a choice that someone made at some point in the production. And for some reason, no one questioned it. Um, Stopped her? (laughs) Yeah, there was no Lord Beesbury to stand up for maybe vetoing this accent. I'm not a fan of the accent. I'm a fan of Sonoya Mizuno. I wish that they had also fleshed out this role a bit more in earlier episodes. I felt like I think I love the show, but like my big complaint has been how they've handled Masaria because on paper, she could have been a lot more fascinating and three-dimensional and actually invested and, you know, intertwined with a lot of the drama we've had so far, given her proximity to Damon in the beginning. It seems that they just drop her in when they need to like connect two dots and that's about it. Yeah. She's just, she's just kind of like a plot mechanic right now rather than a character. And she's just a character with a bonkers accent. So it's just sort of like not working either way. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, she was also one of the first actors to get, 
a character poster. So it's kind of wild to me that she there she has nowhere near as much screen time, even as like Sir Kristen Cole, because Fabian Frankel got his own poster too. So I'm wondering if maybe like season two or even this kind of finale episode will kind of expand that more, but we'll get into that a little bit later considering the ending of this episode. I just hope in like for season two, someone goes, we're going to dial this accent back a little bit. We're going to figure out one that actually works. And we're just going to forget about what you did the first season. Like we're just going to move on from this. And I kind of loved this Masaria scene accent, you know, notwithstanding, because we're kind of seeing the, the mirrors between Otto kind of going to get somebody on his side and Allison trying to go and get somebody on her side. Otto goes to Masaria, whose big thing is, well, I know where Aegon is, but I, I need these child fighting pits to stop. The crown has been ignoring them, actively ignoring them in some cases, and we just need to be done with it. So Allison goes to Rhaenys and tries to sway House Valarian to her side. It does not go according to plan. I also just love that we're getting more Rhaenys. I feel like she has the best lines in the entire show. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that all of her like sound bites are being used for the trailers and everything. Megan, what was your kind of first impression about this Allison and Rhaenys sequence that we get? Oh, you know, um, I, I loved it. I love Rhaenys for all the reasons that you just described. But I think what's really fascinating about Rhaenys and her relationship with both Rhaenyra and Allison now is her ability to cut through like the echo chamber of the patriarchy and point out to these women that like, no, like what you think is going to happen and what you think you're doing is not what's really going on. The way of things is a male dominated society. And either you can hope against hope that you will come out on top, as she would say to like Rhaenyra, like it's probably not going to happen for you, sweetheart, but I'm rooting for you. We'll see. Um, And with Allison, she points out that like, her only ambitions are to be in service of the men in her life. And there's so much more to her. I think, what does she say? You're tr- you're fighting for a window in the cell they've created for you. And she's like, you're brighter than I thought you were. You're, you're, you're savvier. Like you could be more. And Allison doesn't seem to quite comprehend that, um, which is really interesting. Lauren, what about you? She's ballsy enough to put her son on the throne, but not to take it for herself. Like, you know, or it, but it, it is, I thought that conversation was very interesting. And when, you know, Allison was making her plea to Rhaenys, and Rhaenys goes, the the words of my house are not fickle. And I was just like, ah, you know, and, and I just thought that whole entire scene, because I remember, like, Nick was telling me he'd seen the episode earlier than I did. And he's like, Rhaenys has like, people are going to be talking about Rhaenys, people are going to be talking about Rhaenys. And I was like, was this the scene we're talking about Rhaenys? Like, I like this scene, but I don't know if people are going to be talking about Rhaenys. But I didn't realize what was coming later on. <laughs> <laughs> but but the scene I was just like I mean but it like I I love Renee so much and I keep thinking that the great council made such the wrong decision because if if this bitch had been queen she would have been a legend like she would have been like she, you know she would have just been an amazing queen first of all she would still be alive so we wouldn't have this whole whole thing but like she would have been an amazing queen of Westeros and I'm like the great council were just a bunch of numb nuts so as I like to <laughs> team people on this podcast <laughs> Numbnut of of the week? Do we have them? (laughs) Numbnut Hall of Fame, the entire Great Council. We'll put them in there, so... Yeah, and we we finally find Aegon, which I kind of loved because I feel like he chose the Sept to be like, no one is going to look for me here. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, I, I, when they found him here, I'm like, hold on, he's underneath. What, like, what, where the hell is he? Like, 
Oh, and he was like, are you with Messiah? No, I'm running. I'm running. <laughs> like, he wants to not be found. <laughs> it's like, maybe I should have left King's Landing, Aegon. Like, it could have got a ship to somewhere. Like, you know. He could have just hopped on Sunfire and just yeah. soared away. He could he could have gone to Pentos and ran into Leonor. Like, you know, he could have done something. Well, we didn't say he was bright. <laughs> yeah, no. He's not, the sh- he's not the sharpest Targaryen in the dragon pit. He is really not, you know. <laughs> I mean, maybe he's just taking after his father, Viserys, who wasn't really good king either. Not really, no. <laughs> but yeah, he, I mean, he's, he, I don't I don't know. It, it, it's really hard to be sympathetic of this man, who, especially after the whole Diana thing that we got in the previous episode. I'm just like, I, I do not, these tears are not working for me, kid. I, I'm kind <laughs> of like, I'm like, I'm done with you. After that whole Diana thing, I'm like, I'm done with you, kid. Like, whatever. I, I'm just, I'm completely done with you. Oh, you he's know? a total sh- little shit. But like, the one thing I always think, like, well, you know what? He's not as bad as Joffrey Baratheon. <laughs> like, that, yeah. that's like, <laughs> one nice thing you can say about him. But I, that's what I was just saying. Like I joked about it on an earlier podcast, and I'm like, but I think Joffrey might have had slightly more leadership qualities <laughs> because Aegon's got like nothing going for him. You know, Joffrey was kind of a tyrant, but like this kid has like gotten nothing. Well, I, I I did kind of love this whole sequence too. The sparring between I think it was like Kristen and Eric, the A one. I, I remember him because I'm like, oh, he's the one who ultimately sides with the Green. So asshole A for asshole eric (laughs) but yeah i mean there was again just like so many different dynamics different characters kind of being pitted together i'm also like feeling like i really like a man bun now i don't know the twins are really working for me megan what do you kind of make of these twins we because this is like our first introduction of both of them kind of together yeah so we met eric with an e last week we saw them sparring in the yard but we haven't met both of them i i was really shocked that eric with an e yeah it was the e one he straight up said Aegon shouldn't be king because he sucks like he's like you don't know what i know this kid should not be on the iron throne this is bullshit and then he saves her knees i thought he immediately became like a little fan favorite for me the way he tried his best to save Renee's, even though she didn't need rescuing in the end and i think yeah it's kind of it's kind of sad to see that he kind of like let his brother go high and dry but Them's the breaks in Westeros, I guess. Like, there's gonna be, (laughs) you're gonna have to make some hard choices when it comes to who's gotta sit on that dreaded Iron Throne. I know. There's so much talk about civility. Why can't we all just be civil? But it's like Rhaenyra, and neither Rhaenyra nor Aegon are like, oh, we deserve it because we're civil. (laughs) They're like, no, we deserve the throne because it's blood. Lauren, I don't know what you kind of make of all of that, this sort of civility kind of theme that kind of always keeps popping up. Well, it is just very interesting. Like, and I think it's like, you know, there's so many pairs of brothers here where it's like, you know, you saw Aegon and uh, Aemond and like Aemond looked like he was ready to just shove a dagger in, in a- you know, in Aegon and be like... Sorry, he died. I don't know what happened, you know, <laughs> and then just walk back to his mother. But like seeing like the Eric, uh, the Eric, like I'm just going to call him Eric one and Eric, you know, Eric two, just seeing them kind of like going back and forth and one person being like, he like Aegon should like Eric with an E, this kid should not become king. He is like a piece of shit. And the other one being like, well, he, this is 
you know, like cueing much more to, well, this is, this is, we can't do this. This isn't us. And, you know, and Eric being like, yeah, I'm out, bitch. I'm going to go get the queen that never was. And I'm, I'm taking off here because someone needs to get Renera, uh, give uh, Renera the heads up on what's going on here. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we're going to get into Allison's confrontation with Otto. Stay tuned. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And we're back. So. Allison now has Aegon, and she has this pretty big confrontation with her father, Otto, in his office. And both of them really make clear what their priorities are and how things may or may not be moving forward. I I thought this scene was so cool. Megan, I'll start with you. What were kind of the biggest, most impactful kind of moments of this kind of meeting? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think for me, it's like we were saying earlier, Allison and Otto are no longer on the same page. Otto really wants to use, I guess, fire and blood, literally, to sort of solidify the Hightower branch of the Targaryen's claim. And Alicent is still sort of holding on to parts of her younger self who felt sweet for Rhaenyra, who who cared about what Viserys really wanted, whether or not she misconstrued his final words or not, she feels in her heart he didn't mean for them to, to murder his brother and his sister, or daughter, that would never be his his will. So she's trying her best to have it both ways. She wants to have House Hightower on the Iron Throne, but she also doesn't want to let down Viserys and, you know, the rest of the family. Um, What I thought was really interesting is that she firmly decided that Aegon would be coronated on the morrow and that she would have, that he would have the Conqueror's Crown and the Sword Blackfire. I thought those were two very interesting choices for this first Hightower, you know, king. What did you guys think? Yeah, I'll kind of defer to you, Lauren, but I was just going to mention that like previous episodes, we were talking about the fact that one of the things that the Hightowers did when they took over and Viserys was on his deathbed was they got rid of all the Targaryen iconography and just like replaced it with all of this religious imagery. So Lauren, how do you kind of feel about that? I think it was really like they knew what they were doing was dodgy. Like, because they know that there there was an heir to this throne, it was not Aegon, and so they, I think, they were trying to dis, uh, to cloak Aegon in his namesake's power. Like that's why, like they were using his crown. That's why the, he had Blackfire, which we really haven't seen to this point. We've seen Dark Sister a lot, the other uh, ancient Targaryen Valyrian sword. So I thought that was like very interesting that they were trying to cloak. Aegon and Aegon the Conqueror's powers so that people could not deny him as the rightful heir to this throne, even though, you know, his sister was the heir, the named heir. And I would have to say, like, the the people of King's Landing can go F (laughs) F themselves because they were all like, sure, yeah, let's have a man. 
fun. That's great. And I was like, you all, you go. I'm glad what happens to some of you getting, you know. know. Renice was right to take you guys out. So, but we're getting there. But yeah, so I I, I definitely thought that was interesting that they, uh, because we we did, we saw, you know, her put Viserys's, the crown that Viserys was wearing on top of Viserys's body. So there, it was very clear, like, that this was a completely different crown than the one that Viserys had been wearing. So, you know, I thought that was kind of like, that that was very an, an interesting choice on her part. And also giving, handing over, like, Viserys, the cat's paw dagger uh, as well, I think was like, you know, and I was kind of just like, does did Aegon have you ever learned Valerian? Is he going to read what's on this dagger? Like, you know, Jace is trying. He's trying. <laughs> yeah, Jace is at least trying. Jace might not actually understand it, and I, I'm kind of curious. Like, did, has like Rhaenyra told Jace about the prophecy? Because he's supposed to be the next heir. So I'm kind of curious about that. At the risk of drawing too many political parallels to this, I mean. I definitely got the vibe when you talk about coding Aegon and all of this classical Targaryen imagery, like Westeros used to be great. Let's make it great again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, remember this guy? My name's also that guy. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely a display of fascism in that area. It's kind of a, was it a sept above the dragon pit is where they're doing it? Is that where the location is? Yeah, it was the dragon pit. Because I, I was a little bit confused at first because I thought they were in the sept. And then I was just like, but then I realized like after a certain event, I was like, oh, that was the dragon pit. And then I went and I looked in, in the, in Fire and Blood, he is like, the, yeah, is but, in but the dragon it pit. It is a sept that's built above the dragon pit. And I suppose... This event is why Baylor has to build a different sept down the line. (laughs) (laughs) That's why the great sept comes along here. (laughs) So now let's talk about the club foot in the room. Oh, boy. Oh, brother. (laughs) I knew there was something weird going on between those two. Like, I just knew it. Like, when this started happening, I was like... I knew there was something going on between these two. So to kind of recap a little bit, Allison and Otto kind of go their separate ways. They're clearly at odds with each other, have their own plans in mind for how things are going to play out. Laris is also complicating matters because he's just like, oh, hey, Otto. Yeah, there's no reason why my private meetings with your daughter can't benefit you in some way. So maybe he's going to start leaking information about Allison to him that way. Who knows? But what we do know... (laughs) Is this man now has a certain, what is it, proclivity, a fetish kind of going on? He's got a foot fetish. Lauren, do you want to set this up for us? Do I want to? But I guess I will. Um, So basically, (laughs) after a very, after a very long trying day, Allison, I think, I guess she goes back to her room and Laris is there. And I guess this is what I sort of realized, like, you know, after killing his father and Renera's lover, I guess this is part of Laris's payment for doing that and getting her father was like, I was like, oh, God, how long have you two been doing this? Like... And so I thought that was very weird because at first when it was like that, that shot of like, so basically Ellison comes and she's like, yeah, what? And he's like, well, I've got some, you know, you know, got some information, but, and he's like holding back. And so she like literally like takes off her shoes and puts her like stocking feet on the table. And I was just like, 
that's a very weird shot. Like what's going on here? And then when he like, you know, gives her a little bit of info and then stops again. And then she like literally strips off her stockings and puts her feet in plain view of him. And then a little bit later on, like he gives her the information that she wants. And then she just turns his head away, but leaves her feet in clear view. And Laris reaches into his pants to give himself a happy, uh, a happy uh, ending there. And I was just like, Oh God, <laughs> like, how long has this been going on? Yeah. Megan, what was your first reaction to this? <laughs> so my, my first reaction when she shook off her shoes, I was like, yeah, girl, take off your shoes. It's been a day. Your feet, must, your toesies must be hurting. And like, maybe I just thought like, Oh, that's how intimate they've gotten that they can just, she can just be relaxed. And then I'm like, Oh no, that's how intimate they've gotten where she's, literally giving him the Westerosi version of wiki feet to Laris because they don't have, they don't have that. Maybe that's what you got to do. I don't know. But yeah, I, I didn't actually realize what was happening the first time until like the very end. And I'm like, Oh gosh, wow. Okay. It's interesting because she seems so dispassionate about it, which is how Allison reacts to sex. She's very dispassionate about it, but she's again, t- decides she she believes that she has the moral high ground in every case this is not really a moral high ground situation that she's in and in, in any stretch of the imagination it basically just seems like laris has been holding over the what happened what he did for uh to get rid of the re- rest of the members of how strong over her head and has been using it i i'm curious as to what else he's been requesting of her over the years so i'm kind of i'm kind of curious to see what other uh, what other things he's been making her do? Give him so. her stockings. Uh, <laughs> uh. Why did I say that? Oh no! <laughs> it's on the record. Now. It's Game of Thrones. This is gonna happen. <laughs> you know, it was funny though because I was just thinking, like, before I saw this episode, I'm like, yeah, like Game, like House of the Dragon hasn't been as like, over- like I mean, there's been like, there's been boobs and butts and you know some sex here and there, but it hasn't been as overt about it as Game of Thrones was where it was really just like, you know, boobs everywhere for like in the early seasons. And then I was like, Oh yeah, I thought about that too soon. (laughs) It's like, we're just going to get some. It's just season one so far. (laughs) Not to kink shame anybody, but you know, (laughs) it's a little bit like, (laughs) <laughs> Poor Allison. I hope one day she finds like, you know, I, that's why I was just sort of like, I hope Kristen Cole is having sex with her. At least this lady can have an orgasm. She oh, yeah, I will say Olivia Cook's performance definitely feels like that of a woman who has not had an orgasm in like her whole life. So <laughs> I mean, I, I do hope that maybe she will. If she breaks this many rules, she should break some of the fun ones. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> So one of the big plot takeaways from this meeting between Alicent and Laris is that Laris tells her, oh, there's a weaver, there's a web of lies that Otto and the small council have just kind of allowed to exist. And he's referring to Missaria, it seems like, which leads us, the viewer, to imply through a scene that happens later on in this episode that the queen gives Laris the okay to hire somebody to burn down and kill Masaria in her home. I don't I don't know. Do we feel Masaria is dead or do we feel like she's still kind of lingering? No, I mean not just cuz I read the book, but also um we never see a body. And when you never see a body in Game of Thrones, you got or any any storytelling, you got to believe that there will be a, a return from the old grave. So Lauren, also question, I'll start with you, but question for the group. Because this scene happened after Laris told Otto, like, hey, I can use these meetings to your advantage, too. Do we feel like this was 
a play on auto, like, or an auto play to be like, hey, Laris, tell Allison about Masaria, get her to kind of try and execute this woman for me. You know, the thing is, like, I think with Laris is that he is his own master and, he, you know, he's playing both of those high towers. Like, he'll play them to whatever advantage he wants, you know, like, and he'll probably make both of them think that he's giving them a little bit here and there to think that they're getting what they what they need. But I, you know, I just don't think he's, he, like, I think his he's his own master and no one else is, so... I, I'm never quite sure what Laris is really up to. I, I like that thought, Nick, because it definitely shows a lot of like you know Otto's strategy. But I think in this case, I'm going to go with Lauren. And I think what Laris is doing is probably eliminating the competition. Because if there's two spy masters in King's Landing, that means that he is not as in control. So yeah, I think that was more personally motivated than for the benefit of either Alice and Dorado. So now let's talk about Rainy, <laughs> the queen, the true yeah, queen, the true queen. <laughs> a little uh, recap table setting for this grand moment that we have with her. So the good Eric, the good Eric twin, he's disgusted with all of this usurping going on. He breaks Renice out of her chambers and they, she, he disguises her and they flee through King's Landing. He's trying to get her to safety. She does not want to leave Melis behind, which I loved. I love this bond between the Targaryens and their dragons. It's so sacred. It's so special. And I feel like Rhaenys and Melis have the strongest of that kind of connection based on what we see in this episode. She gets swept off into the crowds as everyone's being herded into the dragon pit for the coronation of Aegon. She's for a while, she's just kind of observing. Maybe she even has a little bit of a smirk on her face. I don't know. I couldn't really tell. I think like when she saw they were heading towards the dragon pit, she definitely was like, oh, okay. I know what I'm doing. You know, <laughs> it's like, she's like, she's like, I've got a plan in motion here, people. Like, you know, which is why she should have been queen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then she obviously, she dips down beneath the dragon pit, gets Maylace, and boom, they bust <laughs> out of the floor of the dragon pit. She has the, there's this amazing shot of her in like full rainy Targaryen armor. Like this is her battle armor. She's, I love that she was just casually brought that armor with her <laughs> to <laughs> King's Landing. Well, I was wondering... <laughs> If maybe it's in the dragon pit, like along with the supplies, they have like a go-to armor for people. Yeah, they have like armor. Like a supply yeah. closet. Totally. Because and I noticed, because I, I, I watched that scene many times because it was very cool. But I did notice that like it, she did have her armor over top of that dress that she was wearing because it was like there was velvet underneath it. So it basically looked like she just grabbed some armor, so, you know, <laughs> like armored herself up and then was like, but I, oh my God, like, because we, we go through the whole coronation and, you know, and, and it's funny because like Aegon as much as he had been protesting he was like hey maybe this king thing is kind of fun like you know he was kind of like I'm getting the uh, adulation of the crowd and then the queen that never was busts into the party on her dragon and I was like oh yeah <laughs> you know Scatters, small like, if only she had said Dracaris, we would have like the dance would have been done. And I, I was just joking to Nick earlier. I was like, she should have said Dr- Dracaris, taken Aegon's crown, crowned herself and been like, yeah, people, I'm the queen now. And I just feel like, yeah, I mean, Megan, I'm going to turn to you. I mean, this was such an interesting moment. She clearly had the opportunity to end the war before it even began, but she chose to fly off instead. I mean, what do you, what did you make of this moment? What did you feel was really kind of 
going on internally with her. Yeah, I've been debating this myself. I think there is a part of her that respects Allison and who she is within the family structure. I think she probably has no ill will towards, say, Helena, who'd be up there dying too. I think Reynos is a person who is not rash in her judgment also. So I think, to me, it felt like a final warning. Like, today I will let you idiots live. But if you really, and you have a chance to, like, call off this masquerade, return the crown, that there is actually a point where you can say, sorry, Rhaenyra, we, we didn't know where you were, bye. But but she sort of says, like, this is what you're dealing with. You're actually going to face the dragon next time. That's how I felt like it was. I also think it should not be undersold that she's repeatedly told people, like, I don't want to be queen. I left that behind. So the the, imp- the impetus to actually t- seize power in that moment is not her game. Her game is to, well, I don't know what her game is. <laughs> I think it's just, yeah, that's it. And basically saying like, it was like she was firing off a warning shot and she was like, listen, I've got my dragon here. I'm going to go get the other dragons and we're coming back here. So you guys better, maybe you should rethink this whole like thing that you're going to do. Cause I'm coming back with Renera and I'm coming back with Damon and you guys probably don't want to be doing what you're doing when we come back, you know? So yeah. Cause we got a lot more dragons and, and we've got a lot more experienced dragon riders at this point than you, you know, than you guys and are the small folk who just got in the way. They, they, they're just collateral damage. <laughs> They just got squashed. So I did kind of like the small folk in this scene because I, my my big uh, impression after that was just like, oh, they don't give a fuck who's sitting on the Iron Throne. They're just like, oh, we're clapping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a fan. Okay, that's fine. We didn't know about that other like we uh, Renair or whatever. But yeah, this is fine. You know. Now let's bring let's move to the more spoilery section of the podcast where we're going to be talking about House of the Dragon in relation to George R. R. Martin's books. I, I was a question for the group. Oh yes, <laughs> Megan. Megan has her I copy. Like, you mean this book <laughs> ready to that go. I have, like notes in. Fuck <laughs> <like> a maniac. <laughs> I love it. So first question for the group: Are there? Did this episode? either change things for you as it's laid out in fire and blood or maybe enhanced it in a way or made you think about it in a different way. It definitely made me think differently about Allison because this is always like, like Allison is very much like, you know, her animosity towards Renera was very, always very clear. And this episode really gave it a lot more shadings where she was just like, you and know, as Megan said earlier, like she thinks she's carrying out the Viserys's last wishes, but she wants to, you know, she, she, you know, of course she's making her son King, but, you know, she doesn't want Renera to be d- dead. But I, I, also, I'm kind of just like, Allison, you know Renera. Like, do you think she's just going to be like, yeah, that's fine. He can have the Iron Throne. Like, no. Like, <laughs> you know what Renera's like. And you know what Damon is like. So do you really think these two people are just going to be like, sure, usurp our throne, whatever. So, yeah, it did really make me think differently a, a, a lot about Allison. But also, it's very much like, like some of the stuff happened that that were similar. Like, although like like Lord Beesbury's death was more accidental than it was intentional, because he's really like the first. They always call him he's the first death in the Dance of Dragons, and and in the book, like Kristen slit his throat, and here it's like he just 
sort of smashed him on the on the table you know so i i they, that's kind of like the, the my big takeaway is like how the, the shadings of allison are very different and i thought it was interesting that they just kept renera off screen this entire episode it wasn't like you were cutting back and forth between the greens and the blacks it was you were just with the greens most of the you know most of the time and then you know had you had a few people breaking off you know who were loyal to the blacks to to stay there but like what did you think no i totally agree alice it became a lot more nuanced and shall we say morally gray which is the hallmark of all george R. R. martin's work and why i personally dig it i also like you know the rainiest moment is obviously not in the books but it fucking rules and i'm happy they did it because it's not only a dramatic sort of metaphor for like what's about to come. You have like the high towers taking, you know, power, but the true Targaryen power is the dragons. And so just seeing that visually is, was really stunning and cool. I, I personally, as you know, a fan of the books and I, as someone who knows it's coming really liked that they kept talking about how storms end is going to be a problem because that, as we know, is probably going to be the next big, you know, episode of the civil war and therefore potentially the finale set piece. And I will not say more on that because I'm not sure how far we're getting into the spoilers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, let's not say exactly what happens, but that was going to be one of my questions. Like, do we think that's going to be a finale set piece? And Megan, you you think that is? I think, yeah, I don't think they would have mentioned it this episode or even in the first episode have a Baratheon be pointed out so clearly if like maybe they weren't planning to end the first season with the storm's end situation. Yeah. I, I, I think in ter- for, to ask the same question, you know, of myself, I really loved the final moment. And if we're thinking about fire and blood as what it is, which is a historical record of events that transpired, I love this idea that, Maybe Aegon, right when he's like talking to the maesters about writing down what happened on the day of his coronation, he was like, "No, Rhaenys didn't do this. I, I, I th- we had the biggest crowd. The, the, the most people came out more the than Rhaenyra. Rejoiced, you know. <laughs> All the dragons roared as one. <laughs> yeah. All that jazz." <laughs> Well, the thing is, it's funny because I said, like, I was listening to last week's podcast and I said, you know, Renice wasn't a stunt queen. And I was totally wrong because Renice is a total stunt queen. This was quite a stunt. So, but I was just like, I was like, this was a great stunt. I loved it. I rewatched it so many times. So, you know, all hail Renice, the true queen of Westeros. Maybe if Jason and Luke were stunt queens themselves, no one would question their lineage. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Did either of you spot any fun Easter eggs, house name drops, sigil spotting, anything like that? The first one that came to mind was the Storm's End one, Megan. I'm glad that kind of stood out for you, too. Lauren, what about you? Anything that kind of comes to mind? Well, I was just like the noting about Storm's End and the Baratheon is that, you know, Renice is half Baratheon, like her mother's a Baratheon, I believe. So that's that, you know, it's always interesting how the Baratheons sort of intermarried into the Targaryens and how that kind of came out over the Targaryen history. I'm trying to think if like there was anything specific I was thinking about with Easter eggs and, you know, like, not so much, but I, I was just mostly thinking about, like, you know, the coronation. The one thing that I, I, I did think about was the coronation, because I know in the books, Aegon II uses a golden dragon for his sigil, if I remember. And it's like, right now, it's still just the red the red one. So I'm kind of curious as to when we're going to start seeing, like, different the different sigils of, like, house 
the like of the blacks and the greens because obviously they can't all use the same targaryen sigil or it's going to get confusing on the battlefield so i am kind of curious when we're going to start seeing the different sigils uh, kind of coming to play here yeah i was i was struck by what the everyone was wearing during the coronation weirdly enough i like that helena marches the beat of her own drum wears blue and she was crying during it she was not happy and the happy queen and that i think I'm not sure if both Aemon and Aegon, but Aegon was definitely in black, not green, which could have been part of the Targaryen pageantry, as we were saying, but he clearly has not yet adopted the gold, but also the idea that mentally and emotionally, he was kind of like, oh, Rhaenyra should be queen, right? Which sort of almost like visually puts him with the blacks, ironically enough. Yeah. The one thing though I did like was like when Renice was like facing all of them with her dragon, Aemon kind of was like in fighting stance. Like he was ready to like to go, even though he didn't have his, you know, he didn't have Vagar. Like I'm like, Vagar must have been around there somewhere because you know, they were in the dragon pit. But like I, I just did notice that that like Vagan, like like Aegon's like cowering between his mother and Aemon's like totally in fighting stance like ready to go. So like though, obviously what yeah. they do against. And, and speaking of Eamon, I thought it was interesting during the Silk Street or the Street of Silk scene where it was very clear that his first time was with a much older woman and he seemed to like that because, you know, book spoilers. Um- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know there's that, cl- what, what was that line where the, the madam is like, ooh, how you've grown. Yeah. You want to come back? a little like, <laughs> Is something happening to me that's not rage or <laughs> jealousy? <laughs> I I found it the this Rhaenys kind of finale moment also interesting because I mean if we we remember in Game of Thrones like we always kind of think yeah because of Daenerys that all Targaryens are like the true blood of the dragon and they can't be killed by fire and we're kind of being reminded that no not all Targaryens are kind of like that I mean we even saw Lena Valarian um, meet her death by dragon fire which was so sad my god but yeah that's kind of another thing that i'm like like quietly keeping track of i'm like okay who is technically really the blood of the dragon and are do do we think we're gonna get kind of a moment like that where someone shoots fire at someone and they're like nope i'm good i'm true blood i think there's definitely like a sliding scale of various magical like accoutrements our games come with because obviously like Jon Snow, if we are believing in like that it is R plus J or R plus L equals J, he was burned by the fire in the first book, but he's also a warg and presumably will come back from the dead. So he has some magical stuff going on there. I don't know if resistance to dragon fire is the same thing as resistance to just fire fire. I'm curious if there's like a sliding scale where maybe dragon fire can kill a Targaryen or at least not harm him as much. But yeah. Because I know, like, with Daenerys, like, the when she walked through the fire when uh, during the birth of the dragons, there was, like, there was, like, she was doing black magic because Miri Mazdur was involved in that. And then there was, like, that scene in the fifth season where she burned the Dothraki and she walked through the fire there. So Daenerys seems, like, pretty fire-resistant, but, you know, I'm not quite sure what was going on there because, like, obviously Jon wasn't fire-resistant, but he had other magical properties going on. So, yeah, it is kind of curious, like, how they're going to address that one going further. And some Targaryens don't get sick ever, and Viserys was obviously a walking weekend at Bernie's for, like, 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's a sliding scale. And, yeah, I'm also very curious. I'm not sure if this is too spoiler because one of my other theories about the finale is we will it will end with a shot of jace going to winterfell 
which is a part I'm excited to see because he seems to be the most Jon Snow-esque of his generation. And feel free to cut this out, but like I'm, I'm, I, I do like that they're sort of saying that when the blood of like a, a first man, f- the first men and the Targaryens come together, you get a dark-haired little emo kid who like, does well at Winterfell. <laughs> <that's all. laughs> yeah, so let's talk about the finale episode that's coming a week from now, or, or for a week from you know when this podcast is going to come out. This episode, the penultimate episode, was called the Green Council. I'm assuming. Episode 10 will be called the Black Council, which will be Rhaenyra's War Council. Rhaenyra will now get to make her move. I noticed kind of, I was looking back in some of the featurettes and some of the behind the scenes footage that we've gotten in promos. We do get a shot of a war room at Dragonstone. We see that Rhaenys is there in this kind of war armor that we get of her in this episode. So I think it's fair to say she's the one that's informing Rhaenyra about Alicent and Aegon and everything going down at King's Landing. We also see that Rhaenyra is wearing a crown, a different crown, presumably her, the crown of her own father, Viserys. It's gold, and whereas Aegon, the Conqueror's crown, is this kind of like wrought iron, dark charcoal situation. So there are, we did kind of have kind of some clues about maybe what we can expect in the finale. What are both of you hoping to see in the final episode of this season? Obviously, I'm very interested to see like Rhaenyra crown, you know, because I know she gets crowned queen at Dragonstone. So I'm interested to see if they have like a formal coronation or if it's much more like, you know, uh, you know, informal because like they're in crisis mode. I shallowly, I want to see some Targaryen armor. I love the, like, you know, we, we've saw, got to see Damon's armor. We got to see, like, I don't know if that was Renice's true Targaryen armor, but I want to see Targaryens in full battle armor. Like, I'm excited about that. I want, I want to see dragons flying. I want to see some, you know, I want to see some battles. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know how far we're going to get to that. But yeah, I'm just kind of interested to see uh, what Rhaenyra's coronation is is sort of like and very interesting to see what Damon does in this next episode because he's always a wild card in terms of this. I'm interested to see if they're going to start talking about the dragon seeds at all uh, or if that's just going to be a later uh, later thing where the dragon seeds are at a certain point they just have more dragons than they have riders and they need to find people of non-Targaryen blood to or sort of bastard Targaryen blood to ride these things. So kind of curious about like what we're going to we're going to see. Yeah, I'm kind of on the same page. Obviously, I mentioned Storm's End and Jace going on his journey. But Rhaenyra is in the show pregnant. And I'm curious if that will come to a head next week or if they're going to hold that. I mean, that would kind of be badass. Pregnant lady on top of a dragon burning everything down. I'd love to see it. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Megan, for joining us today. Megan, since you're not an EW staffer, where can people find you online if they want to keep up? Mostly decider.com. I'm, you know, in full-fledged hot D action right now. And you can follow (laughs) me on Twitter at MegsOK, spelled M-E-G-S-O-K-A-Y. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by director Claire Kilner and the actress behind Rhaenys Targaryen, Eve Best. Well, thank you both for, you know, taking the time to speak with me today. I, I want to start with the scene that 
everybody is going to be talking about <laughs> when this episode airs, which is Rainey's bursting forth from the dragon pit on the back of Maylee's. Eve, I want to start with you because I, when we've spoken in the past, I mean, you mentioned the fact that, you know, Rainey's being a dragon writer was a really exciting prospect for you and it really gave you insight into who she was and now you get to actually be that dragon writer what was that (laughs) moment like for you well it's so so great but also (laughs) also, you know slightly like today i it was it was the very end of the shoot we're all absolutely exhausted and um you know, the, the kind of, uh, I remember we, the dragon riding was sandwiched in between two days of really uh, heavy dialogue. So, I, and I think I, 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 oh, that's right. I had to, I'd slightly done my back in somehow. Oh. And so anyway, so I was being strapped on the, strapped on the dragon. <laughs> really not feeling like it very much. Certainly feeling like a sort of bit of a bag of bones. And then Claire was, <laughs> all the, all the, all the wind scenes were going, and darling Claire was shouting at me down a microphone. <laughs> and it's Alison, and you don't like Alison, and then because you could only do it on your own. You can't. You have to do it in isolation with the with the video special effects. So there's no nobody else there. So Claire was having to be everybody else. So she was amazing. She was doing all the voices and all the kind of actions of everything that was happening, and then. Um, uh, while we were doing also the, the the movement, the moving on the dragon, so it was quite, it's all quite bonkers, really. And I had this quite so quite kind of sore back, but it, I mean, it was wild. It was yeah, it was wild. She's sorry, she's, not, she's, not sorry, she's such oh, a good sport. <laughs> Claire, I I love hearing that you got to do all of the voices for all oh different characters. <laughs> It was, I was prancing around like a dervish, um, you know, my voice was hoarse by the end of it because I did it for Eve, you know, so I was like, and the dragons, it's bursting through the roof and now it's like facing Alison and Alison is facing you and, you know, she doesn't trust you. And then and then when I, we were doing the other side of it, doing Alison, I was like, and she's bursting through the roof and she's <laughs> coming for you. But it's really fun because it, you just feel like a kid again. You just go for it, you know. <laughs> yeah, Claire, as a director, I mean, obviously this is such a climactic moment and you like don't really know what's going to happen until at the very end where Rainey's decides to fly away. I mean, what was the biggest elements for you that you wanted to emphasize cinematically in this moment? One of the kind of main frames that I was excited about was Rainey's on the dragon huge in the left of frame and Alicent tiny on the right hand of frame and just that moment there waiting to see if she decided to incinerate them all and just blow the whole thing to smithereens but Rainice is such an intelligent woman and really a peace she wants peace in in this world uh, you know, and then obviously she decides not to do it. So that was quite a sort of the peak of that scene, really. And, you know, everything. But, you know, there were so many elements to bringing this together, you know, because we're filming in a 
what's meant to some uh, a studio that's meant to be the size of a football pitch but it's actually a third of the size of a football pitch so you have to do everything in layers so even all the people sort of like running when the dragon bursts through the boards you have to do you know uh you do sort of 50 people and then you shoot another 50 people and then you shoot another 50 people and you know, it's not, you know and then you shoot individual people doing stunts on harnesses that sort of get projectiled you know left right and center against blue screen and then you put those into the scene so there's it's multi-layered and i mean eve i mean it's claire you kind of mentioned this just like the fact that Rainice could have ended the war even before it began at this moment, but she chose not to, which is so significant. I, I was curious from you as an actor, what was important for you in that moment about that performance? Gosh, I think it's it's a sort of, it's like the pinnacle, it's the moment when she just shows herself to be the greatest possible ruler uh, and it's the most, in a way, it's kind of the most beautiful thing that anybody's the most outrageous and explosive action of the season, I think, in a, in a way, but it's also the most merciful and most graceful act because, like Claire says, because she is so, uh, she's so intelligent and, and in the end uh, chooses, chooses to do the right thing, which is not to destroy. And, and I think it's something that is, it's a truly... It's almost like a, it's a truly forgiving moment, but it's also um, a true, it's sort of a loving moment in a, in a weird mm-hmm. way. Because it's the choice to, you know, with all the, she has all the ammunition and all the, all the desire for, for revenge is so great. And she's suffered so much loss and, and kind of for her, for her own sake and on behalf of so many others, the urge to destroy is so strong. And, and yet the choice not to destroy becomes even stronger and that's the that's the mark of greatness and um yeah it's truly inspiring a really inspiring moment i think and actually one that is particularly resonant in this context that we're going through right now in our world with everything that's going on with you know russia and all of that um you know the choice not to drop the bombs is a, is you know is the greater choice I love hearing you talk about this because it's it makes me find this character pairing of Rainey's and Allison in this episode so much more fascinating now because mm-hmm. we're seeing Allison being actively manipulated by all of these men around her and like mm-hmm. the toxic results of that. And mm-hmm. Rainey's is sort of above the kind of manipulation. She kind of rises above it. I find that so fascinating. I was curious if that kind of stood out to you. Yeah, well, I think it's it's all. I think she, Alison, proves herself. I mean, Claire, you, you must tell me what you, you think as yeah. well. But I think read that Alison really proves herself in that scene. I think Renisa had taken her very much for granted as somebody just not really to be paid attention to, and she shows herself to be somebody actually to be reckoned with. And I think there's a kind of mutual respect that happens as a result of that scene. Would you say, Claire? Yes, yes, there is. I and think it's she two women. Well, it's two yeah. women understand what it's like to be living yeah. through the appalling treatment, abuse, repression, oppression, the, the horrors of this patriarchal system. They they, they, they see eye to eye. They totally, they understand it and they empathize in a way. 
I, I well, and I think she learns so much from that moment, you know, because she pushes Aegon behind her and stands to face you, and she's uh, ready to die. And I think yeah, and so she, and she steps up as a mother. Yes, and so then it becomes two, and I think Rhaenys sees that and respects that, and on yes. and on. So then the decision not to not to say Dracarys and wipe them all out is is also a, a, it's um it's an honouring, mm-hmm. and it's almost like you know like the, in the in the in the days when knights in these days when knights would fight each other and so much of it and it's, it's samurai isn't it that code of honour is so yes. strong and yeah. it feels like a female equivalent yeah of, you know actually we bow to I bow to you and I. I uh, you know, I I respect you and I honor you and I you know I choose not to destroy you. Yeah, because people, it's interesting people's reactions to Alicent, and everyone says to me, "Whose side are you on?" But whenever I'm directing Alicent, I'm just completely on her side. You know, I'm on I'm on who whosever side I'm directing mm. <laughs> at that moment. But I, you know, saw her as a woman born into this terrible patriarchal society where, you know, she had no choices and no power and she's just navigating it in the best way she can, but with very few tools. Rhaenys has got so much knowledge that she's gleaned through the years and she seems to know when to talk and when not to talk. You know, she's got so much power in her in her silence and her actions where all these men around her are like pontificating and killing and shouting and talking, you know, but she seems to have this great wealth of knowledge and and I think a lot of that you know sort of gets imparted in that brilliant previous scene where you and Alison talk yeah and also she you know Alison is I think that exchange when Alison says to Rainey when looks her in the eye and says to her the truth about you should have been queen it should have been you and everybody knows it yeah I think she sees Rainey's. The fact that she needs, she sees Rainey's. Yes. I think not only takes Rainey's breath completely away, but also I think it's the first time, it, almost in her life, really, that she she feels truly vulnerable and taken and and taken aback because it's like Alison has just spoken directly yeah. to her to her heart. In that moment, it feels like the roles are completely re- reversed, and Rainey is yeah. suddenly, for a moment, like a young child. Wow! Um, wow! Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's really, um, it's like she, she's the Alicent's the only one who's who's seen her. Yeah, Claire, I wanted to ask you because this final sequence with Rainey and Maylis, it's not in Fire and Blood, and I've always, it's been so much fun to like watch this season and see what you guys are adding in, what new material it is. I was yeah. curious if you got any kind of insights from Ryan and Miguel just about crafting this sequence that isn't in the source material and sort of the importance of adding it into the show. I mean, it was for me, it was there in the script. So it was it it always existed in my in my view. But I just it's just it's a moment where everything is turned on its head. And I think one of the most important things was who controls the dragon, you know, and they've got this dragon. And whilst they've got this dragon, they think they have all the power. And Otto relies on having this dragon and the fact that that, you know, Rhaenys 
emerges with the dragon and leaves means that they have very little to fight with. They feel like, especially if it was really, there was a a really interesting moment about whether Otto should say close the doors or open the doors. Yeah. (laughs) Because on the one hand, he wants to say, close the doors because he wants to keep the dragon in there but you know and tame it and get rid of Rhaenys and you know hold the have the nuclear bomb so to speak but on the other hand if the dragon stays in there it will potentially incinerate them all so and then also plus everyone's dying all around them like a sort of I, I always thought of it like a sort of stampede in a football pitch or a concert or something you know where people just are getting trampled left right and center and you know you've got to say you know you've got to open the doors but the chain of command is lost because there's such chaos and mayhem and the soldiers just keep doing what they they've been told which is you know close the doors you know so we also get this glimpse of i believe it's armor that rainis is wearing it's a, it's a look i've i've never seen before on this show eve is that your character's like wartime armor is like that yeah. what she wears when she goes into battle yeah absolutely absolutely and the day ryan in particular was very keen that we didn't see it I think this is right, Claire, isn't it? They, they yes. wanted to make sure that it wasn't seen until that yes. very... That she's packed it, she's travelled to King's Landing with it because it's it's part of her, you know, dragon riding equipment. And I think also in a, in probably in a sort of moment of knowledge that, that, you know, in episode eight, that there's probably... She's, she's flying into tricky waters. She has definitely packed her armour, but it's the first time that she wears it. And yeah, we wanted her to be rising like a phoenix from the ashes. Yeah. Or, and you know, in her... has, I think she hasn't worn it for a very, very, very long time. And the fact that she's wearing it means business. It's like that this is the no, no more games. Yeah, Claire, did you have a hand in sort of crafting that armor specifically? No, I didn't. No, that was all crafted i did <laughs> yeah yeah eve what, what were um sort of your suggestions for it insofar as i w- i made a special request because they had a they had something around the throat originally it was like a kind of throat guard which i think the other people who wear armor on the show have uh, so they they had designed it with a, a big sort of throat guard and I said, look, I don't, I, that's not going to work for me because I, I knew that the dragon riding was going to be quite physical and I was going to have to be able to, you know, going to need to be able to move and, and feel free. And the thing about this neck coif, I think it was called, was it just made everything very, very stiff. So they very kindly fashioned it so that they, I had, I, my, my armour was slightly different, had a slightly more feminine style than the... And there was something, Eve, wasn't there? There's something also about, you know, it was interesting, your costume as a whole, because sometimes it was very easy for it to be very masculine, you know, and because she's such a strong character. But I think, you know, the way you talked about her was that she really had this wonderful soft side. And I think mm-hmm. you created an incredibly strong character with this with this incredibly incredible softness to her as well. And you wanted that reflected in the costume. Yeah, yes, exactly. That it was, that I wanted it. That's right. I remember that we had a conversation about that early on, mm-hmm. that I wanted very much that I didn't want her to be like, yes, to, to suddenly become too masculine 
um, on the dragon that there's something very strong because I've always felt with Steve and I always agreed that, you know, the thing about what makes them so work so well as a couple is that he's a very strongly in his masculine and she's a very strong, you know, strongly in her feminine. She's a very strong man and a very strong woman. We were both, you know, and being being a strong woman doesn't mean dressing up, needing to dress up as a man. Yeah, um, I think that's so important. And so I, either, yeah. either emotionally or physically. Yes. And uh, uh, that so that so that, that that was another part of the whole conversation about keeping this keeping this armor not too sort of brutish and wanting it to be a bit more tailored and a bit more light and somehow feminine in some way. Yeah, Claire, I also wanted to ask you about Helena, because I, I, this character is so funny. She's just oh, my off God. to the side and she's casually giving you all these prophecies about things that oh, are going to Oh, I love her, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in your mind was, because she said it last episode too, like, like beware of the, a beast beneath the boards. And she yes. says it again early on in this episode. In your mind, was she referring to this moment where yes. Elise is the beast beneath 100%. the boards? Yes, yes. You know, and I love that it's just sort of casual, you know, these prophecies are so casual, you know, it would it would lose it if she was like standing up and proclaiming what's about to happen. She's this quiet character who's very deep and very powerful in her very quiet way. And no, no one really pays attention to her, but she's sort of carrying the world in her heart and soul because she knows so much of what's about to happen. And she just watches. And I think that line, beware the beast beneath the boards, is also very resonant on in literal terms because of the dragon, but also yes. in sort of metaphorical terms. It, and it refers to me, or at least what I hear in that, it refers directly back to the patriarchy and a corrupt system that represses so, so many. And, you know, the, the warning to that system is... is beware beware if you suppress and you put and you hide under boards whoever you do in this case particularly women because just just watch out because they yeah. may may come up and incinerate you all <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> Speaking of those lines like that, I mean, Eve, you have some of the juiciest lines in this entire show. I mean, is it kind of crazy to like, because like, all, I feel like in the trailers too, it's like all of your lines are the ones that get used for the trailers because they're just so good. <laughs> I think my fate, I think uh, there's, yeah, I do. I do love some of the things I, I've got to say, but I think I love the, I love the, the, the line in, in the scene with Alison when she says, you know, you desire not to be free, but to make a window in the wall of your prison. Mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that just felt so powerful and also so pertinent. And then I absolutely loved seeing what Claire, I haven't seen how it's manifested because I haven't seen the episode, but I saw Claire's storyboard of how, how she'd so cleverly, you know, translated that into the image of Alicent having prison doors closing in on her at the end is that is that that's still that's that's still happened right say that again I, you went a bit quiet the last bit 
Oh no, you know how you how the, the end of the episode ends with the picture of Alison closed in. Yes, by, yes, by, yes, yes. Yeah. And the door closes. The door closing on her. Yeah, and darkness. Yeah. And just um it's sort of sensitive for someone's fun. Yeah, I mean Claire, you have such cool visual imagery to this whole episode, starting with, you know, the empty castle shots yeah. at the beginning and just all the way to the end. It's exactly what Eve was saying, all the way to the end with these literal doors and also figurative yeah. doors closing in on Alicent. I yeah. mean, what were kind of your biggest inspirations, biggest cues that you wanted to bring visually to this episode? Well, I always sort of start emotionally and then the visuals come, but because I, I initially thought this is a coup. This is suddenly, you know, with the king's death, nobody trusts anyone and everyone's trying to find a side and who is the most powerful person to align yourself with. So in a way, almost every scene I seek to reflect that, you know, but I also wanted it to be very subjective. To, so to so on the one hand, I wanted to feel like everyone's watching everybody and there's a great deal of mystery. And on the other hand, I want to feel like I'm with each person and in their fear and scrabbling around trying to find out what their next move should be and that is that is I mean we, we pretend I what I that I did really love shooting Eve with up in Catharis when you know yeah. you're you know trying to being led to the port by Eric and you're trying to get out to the port and yeah. suddenly you're like swept along by yeah. all the flea bottom locals and I really wanted to be right the camera to be right there with her you know and and Eve was such a good sport because we literally had hundreds of people down this like really narrow road and sheep and people with old fish and stuff and every time they came near Eve they sort of gave her a wide berth because you know she's Eve best (laughs) but um (laughs) and then but then you know she was you were saying like come on knock into me push into me push me and eventually she got them to to go for it (laughs) it was so it was I have to say that was my the most fun of the whole shoot was shooting that sequence with you Oh, in, I with, really enjoyed it with too. Being Spanish actors, and they, yeah, they, they were. It was, it was chaos, but it was chaos. But it, we had to work to get the chaos. Somewhere. Yeah, we did. We really did. We had to push them and shove them a bit. Yeah. Even the sheep were rather polite. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Everything sort of went like clockwork, and it was supposed to be total chaos. So. We yeah. were trying to make it a bit messier yeah 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 but um and I love what you did in that scene as well because you know Rainey's just seemed it almost there was like a little bit that she seemed to be enjoying it oh, and yeah. I thought that was so clever and interesting but I think I think she is because it's actually it's you know it lights a flame inside her yeah it's it, because it's action and I think that's what's been one of the things that's been so frustrating for her. Her whole life is not being able to take action. Yes, yes, and, yes. Uh, and either being denied it because of the political system or, be, or because of her, her dynamic with her husband, or, you know, in all these circumstances, just endlessly not being the person who acts. And yes. I think suddenly to, to be running through the streets for her life is is actually is phenomenally at last exhilarating well sometimes when you're faced with death that's you don't really know 
who you truly are and what you're yeah. capable of. But I think I think it's I think it's absolutely right, and it, and it's and it is also that thing of having the opportunity to to do it, to do something. Yeah. You know, rather just for once. Yeah. Claire, one more um, question. <laughs> I got to ask about uh, Lara Strong, the sequence. Oh, no. Who <laughs> in their right mind <laughs> came, up, came up with this foot fetish that he has? The brilliant, the brilliant Sarah Hess, the writer. She, her mind <laughs> is incredible. I mean, she really wrote us a wonderful episode, I have to say. But yeah, that was that was a really it was an interesting scene, actually, because, you know, funnily enough, I almost would have, you know, you get the intimacy coordinators for, you know, all the nudity, but they don't think about it for this. But it was actually quite a it is so invasive what he does look at, you know, looking at her feet and then, you know, having a wank, basically, <laughs> over her feet. you know, it's so intrusive and invasive it feels I don't know it's like a really dirty scene (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is Game of Thrones you're you're gonna get things here that's not on the rings of power you know yeah yeah. don't mention them (laughs) well thank you both for taking the time to speak with me today it's been so fun talking about this with you and congratulations i mean it it really is an incredible episode oh thank you you. lovely talking to you too likewise and that's it for this episode of west of westeros if you liked what you heard follow rate the podcast and leave us a review on apple podcasts To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Nick A. Romano and at Morglar. This episode of West of Westeros is hosted by Nick Romano and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Nick Romano, and Lauren Morgan. Edited by Michael Classic. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. New episodes of West of Westeros come every Sunday right after the episodes of House of the Dragon air on HBO and stream on HBO Max. Stay tuned.